Welcome back to Full Cut Professionals, a podcast for social service providers, caregivers, and anyone in a helping or serving role. I'm one of your hosts, Krista. And I'm your other host, Faith Larson. And today we are having a guest speaker who really takes us through trauma and self-awareness and how to apply that trauma and self-awareness to the people that we work with and then to ourselves, our family, and to the organizations and the culture that we work within. And it's just such an impactful conversation, you know, and it's just so vulnerable too. Today we're speaking with Randy Kaiser. Randy has been in law enforcement and has seen a lot. He's worked in criminal investigations and human trafficking, and his life took a turn on a personal note, and he found TBRI, Trust-Based Relational Intervention, and it completely changed not only how he approached his work in law enforcement, but how he saw himself and his own life and the level of trauma-informed awareness was able to turn his life around for the better. Trust-based relational intervention is a intervention that comes from Texas Christian University and the Karen Purvis Institute. It stands for this idea of trust-based relational intervention. It really just is about building connections and how people change. TBRI kind of focuses on these three main ideas, connecting, empowering, and then correcting. And it was designed to work with kids from hard places, but we're seeing that it can be applied in any field. And in this case, you're going to hear how it applies to law enforcement. And this idea of connecting with people, empowering them to get their needs met in safe ways, and applying corrective principles where necessary is not a profoundly crazy approach, as you'll hear Randy say, but it's a strategy and it's language and a framework that just really works. So no matter whether you are in law enforcement or in another field, I think you're going to really resonate with this conversation around being trauma-informed in our workplaces, seeing and dealing with really hard things and the impact that has on us, and how these principles can help us better connect with our clients, better serve our clients, but also lead better lives ourselves. This is an absolute treasure. I've been waiting to interview Randy for literally months. And so we are so excited that he was willing to share with us today. I think you're going to love it. Let's dive in. Yeah, let's get started. Welcome back to the Full Cut Professionals podcast. And today is going to be excellent. I've looked forward to this for months and months and months since before we started. We have an incredible guest on today and Faith is here with us. Hello. So we're going to dive in to this awesome conversation. And I want to introduce you to our guest today, Randy Kaiser. So Randy earned his bachelor's in exercise sports science. So very different field that we're talking about today. Um, I'm super excited to hear more about that journey. He has a master's in education from Texas State and then began working in law enforcement in 2012 with the Department of Public Safety. He started out as a crisis negotiator in 2014 and then in 2016 was promoted to special agent within the Criminal Investigations Division of the Texas Department of Public Safety, working primarily on human trafficking and the exploitation of children. 
And then in 2020, he began working with the Karen Purvis Institute on child development and designing a trauma-informed law enforcement course based on the principles of TBRI, Trust-Based Relational Intervention, which we're going to talk a lot about today. And then he became a trust-based relational intervention practitioner and so is certified to then teach these principles and these practices to other people. He has recently retired at the end of last year from the Texas Department of Public Safety and is now working on providing trauma education for victims, communities, and organizations through his own nonprofit, K4 Enterprises. So, so much wealth of information and experience and just perspective, just a lot of diversity here. So, Randy, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for guys for having me. It's uh, really going to be an exciting time, I think, to discuss policing and, and trauma. Uh, it's such a hot topic, and I think that uh, it's a much-needed discussion. So thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, we're so excited that you're here and, and that you're bringing awareness to this topic. 100%. Before we dive in, and we have a ton of questions we want to ask you and get into, but would really just love to hear more about your backstory, specifically, you know, as you kind of unfold whatever you want to share about who you are and, you know, how you got to where you are. Really want to hear, you know, how you came to be a law enforcement officer convinced of this need for trauma-informed awareness, for self-awareness and connection. Yeah. So as you said, my my background uh, is not anything related to law enforcement. I went into college thinking I was going to be like a coach or something. I was always a sports guy. And so I got my bachelor's degree in exercise science. Uh, I got my master's degree mainly because I didn't know what I was going to do when I finished my bachelor's. I was kind of stuck because I didn't really have a, a career path. And so I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I had a mentor at college. She said, stay and get your master's. And so I stayed there, got my master's in education. And then when I finished my master's, it was kind of the same thing. I was like, I don't know where I'm going to get a job or what I'm going to do. I kind of wasn't into the coaching anymore. And so my mentor tried to keep me to get my PhD, but I was like, I'm kind of done with school. I got in the fitness world for uh, about 10 years. I ran my own business. I trained athletes. I trained triathletes. I trained all these different folks. I got really burned out. Wow. It was kind of my first experience of, of burnout because I was you know, working early in the morning to late in the evening. And so I, I just lost the passion for it in some degree. And then I had a bunch of family members that were like, you should go into law enforcement. It's a great career. And I think at the time, the attractive things at the time, now you're talking about 12 years ago, was there was a pension plan, right? There was a guaranteed retirement. Um, there was great benefits, great insurance. And it was sold as this camaraderie thing of, you know, this big mm -hmm. unit of integrity and, and loyalty. So it sounded really cool. And I was burned out, needed something new. And that's kind of where it started. And so that was in 2012. I'd called around looking at different recruiters or, and meeting with different recruiters, but I settled on the Texas Department of Public Safety. And um, I went into their six-month academy in January of 2012. It was an eye-opening experience. <laughs> it was very military-esque. It's one of those things where in that stage, I was about 34 at the time. So at that stage of my life, I wasn't good at taking 
orders anymore. I was kind of past that. And um, so it was a mental trial, that six months uh, of training. And, And what's interesting is like kind of fast forward now, looking back, that method is very broken uh, when it comes to training for law enforcement. And they don't really utilize that as much as anymore because it was really all about tearing us down and creating a situation to where we were submissive in a way, like we were just going to take orders. At the time, I didn't know that, right? Thinking back on my brain 12 years later, getting involved in you know trauma care, uh, I realized it wasn't effective. And I, I think they've learned it too, to some degree, because the military it took them a long time to learn it as well. And so that was my beginning journey. Um, and so 2012, I became a state trooper. I was on patrol and I actually really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. The career was about service and that's what I was interested in. Um, but there was a lot of pitfalls as most officers face once I think they get about a year into the job. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot to start with. But what would you say is was maybe like the number one pitfall that maybe happened most often or that you came across the most? Man, I'm going to settle on, and this might change, you know, my mind might change as this journey goes. But I think what was really disappointing was the support system. There was no true support mm. system. And so what I mean by that is I was sold like the military on camaraderie. But when I actually got into the job, and it's not the people so much, it's the structure of how you promote, you how you move up, or how you get to the next level, or how you get to a different section. Like if you want to go into investigations, or if you want to go into a different kind of subsect within the organization, it really becomes very cutthroat and backstabbing. And it doesn't allow for what I really was looking for was a strong camaraderie and a strong support system within that type of industry, which is absolutely so important. Yeah. And it just didn't exist. Yeah. And like other officers that had, I'd met throughout this process. So at first I thought it was just, you know, maybe it's just this organization or maybe it's just where I was at, but meeting other officers that had prior law enforcement experience, they experienced very similar things in other departments and across this country, like in other States. And so I could tell that this was, again, I didn't recognize it early on, but I could tell that the culture was not necessarily the same everywhere, but it shared a lot of similarities. And so it really, concerned me because as time went on, uh, there was plenty of my friends that became very depressed. They were in law enforcement, uh, suicidal. There was a lot of things that I had never experienced in my life that I was starting to experience. And it mm-hmm. really alarmed me. It really created a lot of chaos in, internally and in my home life. And so I just... I wasn't as cognizant back then, but I'm way more cognizant now, obviously. But as I look back, I could see those the red flags taking place and those things happening that were changing me, changing my life, changing my home life, changing my work life and my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you know, you came from, like you said, the fitness industry and a lot of people when they start out, you know, they're starting out their career in law enforcement. And this is kind of, Mm -hmm. in some cases, the only professional world they know. And so you had that experience of like, whoa, what is this? What were some of those things that you started to see in your personal life and your family that were those red flags for, whoa, this is, 
something's really off here or I don't, however you would describe that. At the time, looking back, I already had a lot of anger issues and those anger issues, I had no understanding. This is prior to law enforcement. I had no understanding of why I would get so angry about just any and everything. So I already had that on my plate and, you know, come to find out later that has to do with childhood trauma that I've dealt with, uh, that I had to unwrap. But now Mm. adding the law enforcement perspective, that, that trigger was being magnified and being multiplied. So not only did I already have these issues coming in, everything was being magnified. My relationships were suffering, uh, all of them, you know, with my friends, with my spouse, later with my kids. And it's because everybody was walking around on eggshells and everybody was terrified. What mood was I going to be in today? Is he going to just lose his mind on everything? And so Really, the biggest thing with me was I was kind of isolating more and more from those around me and Mm. relying more on the law enforcement folks as far as the people I worked with. But there wasn't they weren't very supportive, obviously, because they were dealing with their own issues. So it's really hard for someone that's embedded in trauma to try to help somebody else that's embedded in trauma, because then it's just a downward spiral. Right. We just everything. Everybody's negative everybody's a criminal, everybody's a bad guy, everybody's out to get us. And then you create these negative spirals. So so that's what I noticed was this just downward spiral. Hmm. You and your fellow law enforcement officers were trauma bonded together. And it kind of becomes this thing where like, we're the only people that get each other. Yes. No one else gets us. Yes. Um, Which is not untrue. That is true. Because like law enforcement is kind of like its own subculture where unless you live in it, unless you're a police officer or a family of a police officer, you don't understand the life and you don't understand what people go through. And so the propensity to form these types of trauma bonds with the people that you're doing this really hard life with is very high. And I like, I love that you said, I don't love it that this happened, but I love that you highlighted that that equaled isolation from all other people and aspects of my life because that happens and we don't even realize it. Yes, for sure. I just noticed and, you know, I was hanging out with non-law enforcement friends less and less. And, you know, again, I didn't notice all this at the time, right? This is, this is all very retrospective because at the time with those trauma bonds and my coworkers, those bonds were growing stronger and the other bonds were growing yeah. weaker. But you, like you said, you don't really pay attention to it. You think that's just the way it is. That's that's how I survive this world is by just becoming stronger yeah. friends with my coworkers. And, you know, then I leave everybody else out in the dust and they're going, man, whatever happened to Randy? <laughs> you know, like, where'd he go? And I, I mean, I'm just not even calling mm. people back and not even hanging out with friends. And it lends itself to um, isolation. And, you know, the more I've learned about connection and understanding how important it is to connect to other human beings, I was heading down a very, very bad road with no true support system in place because my wife didn't understand it. Um, She knew something was different about me. Yeah. Uh, And then the coworkers, we just all think this is normal. You know, cops hang out together, cops do stuff together. Yeah, because it's all it's all happening to them too. Yes, but again, I I really like that you highlighted that because isolation 
from like your previous life or isolation just in general is a telltale sign of PTSD. Yes. Yes. Is one of the highest markers of PTSD is that am I, I'm isolating myself or that my world has become isolated. And so, yeah, you're, you're working in a high trauma area um, while also feeling like no one understands me and the world is, you know, I'm not, I don't belong in this world anymore outside of this one little aspect. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we work in such, you know, a dark place. And, and what I mean by that, it's a small percentage of the population, but uh, it's day in and day out. We work in such a dark place. Culturally, all we see is the bad stuff, the bad stuff after bad stuff after bad stuff. Yeah. And, you know, the traditional mode of handling that is to just suppress it and to dismiss it and to move on. And that is very unhealthy and it's not going to lead to any type of healthy, positive connections and relationships. It's all going to, uh, as we teach in our training, it's, it's going to create this downward spiral that's really hard to stop. It really is. I love that you highlighted that as well, because this is something that Faith and I talk about all the time is, you know, when we work in these spaces that are dark, that we are facing some of the darkest things this world can throw at us, we're, you know, we're crazy if we think that we're not being changed by that, that our worldview isn't shifting, that... And what I'm hearing you say is that the quality of life that you experienced as a result, the connections that you had, and the way other people experienced you was impacted because you were being impacted by what you were seeing and experiencing. And I think that's really what it comes down to, right? Is like, we're not here to preach a certain dogma, or I think sometimes in in this field, self-care can sound like that. Sure. But it comes back to like, but what's the application? What's the experience? Because at the end of the day, we're all, we want to experience good things and we want people to experience the best in us. And if our world and our jobs especially are compromising that, then I think we owe it to ourselves, but to the rest of our community and to the the world that we do what it takes to still remain whole and healthy despite what we're exposed to. Yeah. You said earlier something about like connection. That's why connection was so important. So tell us about how you went from isolating yourself, only kind of living in the subculture of law enforcement and the, and living in the dark places to connecting back to yourself and back to the world and, and kind of take us on that journey of, of how, what that looked like for you. Wow. Um, well, it's, actively still ongoing. <laughs> but the the beginnings probably really started in 2015. And this is where I'll share, you know, some of the personal struggles that I went through, not only just because of law enforcement, but because of life itself. And then adding that to the stressors that came with being in law enforcement and being away from my family. And what's crazy, when I think about the time, it was, it was never like financial stress. It was always things that, um, I don't want to say out of my hands, because, you know, when you work for someone, it's still in your hands. You can decide to work there or not work there. But it was things that the organization had 
the changes in the organization. And what I mean by that is we started to do border operations and we started to do all these extra tasks that I think serve a valuable purpose to keep Texans safe and Americans safe. But at the same time, the sacrifices that were being made by most of these officers outweighed the, um, I guess, healthy outcomes of those projects. And so around 2015, we had just um, had our second kid. And I remember most of these calls very vividly um, because I had been gone a lot from 2014 to 2016. I was away from home quite a bit on border deployments and things of that nature for DPS. And my wife called me. Uh, I was either at a training or at the border. I don't remember specifically where I was for the first call, but she called and she was pregnant. Uh, She had gotten pregnant within a few months of our uh, kid we just had. And so the stress from that. Wow, yeah. Not only for her, I'm sure she had expressed and and felt a lot of uh, stress about that as well. But it took me a long time to come to terms with this. At the time, I didn't want another kid. And the stress from work, from me not being home to managing life, um, the two kids we already had were were very stressful on our relationship, like most kids are when uh, you're trying to navigate, you know, marriage with kids. It becomes very complicated of what your relationship looks like with your spouse. And then when I was at training, um, I missed a lot of the doctor's appointments. I was at training a few months later. And my wife called me and asked me if I was sitting down and uh, I was just like, what are you talking about? I don't, you know, I don't have time for this, you know, emotional disconnected completely uh, at this point. Cause I've been in law enforcement, I guess for three or four years and, you know, just no emotional connection whatsoever. Uh, again, that's hindsight. Uh, and so I was just like, what I'm busy. Like, what do you got? And she was like, well, I went to the doctor today and we're having twins. And so oh my I gosh. almost, I literally almost fainted. I had to sit down. I sat down. I remember I was sitting outside of a bench in Austin, Texas at the DPS office because I was at some training. And I just sat there like, you know, in a dark place. I just didn't want this. And, um, you know, most people, you, you think culturally you're excited about having a kid and you're excited about all these things. And I'll be honest, I I, I didn't have the rem- just no excitement whatsoever. Yeah. And I think that was the first time I realized, like, something's not right. Like, you should be excited regardless if it's an accident or it's a you know, unplanned thing. But I wasn't. I had no excitement about it at all. I was actually very disgruntled, very angry, and almost like it was my wife's fault or something. You know, like, <laughs> how dare you have this baby? And I'm like, you know, it was just really, looking back, I was just in a very bad place. And so I realized that, Something had to give, you know, at that point, I I was ready to leave the department at that point, but leaving a a secure job with a secure pension, uh, with great pay at the time, it was just not in the cards. You know, I felt so much duty to take care of the family that I was like, I I can't just leave and not have money and figure this out. We've got kids on the way and all these things. And so I think that that moment was a a tough, tough moment when I look back because uh, I think at one of my trainings, I, I revealed that statement. I'd never had told anybody that I didn't want that kid or those kids. Uh, and that was a hard thing to come to terms with. 
like the bad person in me, like yeah, the shame to come to terms with that that person existed. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that person actually existed, and I think that's hard sometimes for officers because you know we're told to just suck it up. We're supposed to be you know this tough guy, uh, and and that's all men in general, uh, but definitely in law enforcement, we can't show emotion. We're the tough guys. We're supposed to handle business. You know, we can't talk about the the bad guy that's in there because we're fighting the bad guys, right? We're the good guys. Yeah. And so, you know, I read a, I can't remember the book, but it, it talked about that. It talked about the idea that you have to accept you have bad thoughts, you know, that happens that are kind of contrary to what the culture would accept, or there might be a, and it's coming from trauma. That's where it's coming from. But there's yeah. this thing that was always inside of me when it comes to like getting angry and being mad, I never understood. And I never would come to terms with it. Like I always blamed everybody else. Well, you're making me mad, right? Like mm. you're doing it. And so I had to come to terms with that idea that there was something inside of me that I had to deal with. Yeah. Well, you know, something that I talk about a lot as a therapist with clients is like anger and this kind of like flips people on their head. Anger is a protective emotion. It protects yeah, you from yeah. either feeling something worse or it protects you from an actual bad situation. And so anger can actually be very productive and very motivating when we first get it, when it first comes on. But as we push it down and push it down and push it down, it can it can then turn into you know, all of the really, really dark emotions that you're talking about, you know, that shame and that dread, you know, I'm dreading something that's supposed to be happy. I'm looking down a 20 year career, dreading it. Then that just perpetuates the like kind of the dark side of anger that you're talking about. And I love how you talked about and highlighted, you know, emotional disconnection. You know, I know you're saying like in hindsight, like when I was in it, I didn't notice it now I am noticing it. Can you tell us, like, can you define that for us a little bit more about what it feels like to be emotionally disconnected? Yeah, I'm reading a book currently. It's called Do Hard Things. Uh, It's by Steve Magnus. And it really gets to the heart of it because I'm always trying to learn, like, how can I define this? How can I make this? How can I understand it better so I can tell other folks? And so the best way I can explain it, this book, I think, does a good job. It talks about toughness versus callousness. And when I think about my upbringing, you know, it was always about being tough. Like, you got to be really tough. You know, it's all about tough. I grew up in a very authoritative household, and I developed this sense of toughness in my own mind. But what I actually developed was a sense of callousness. And so what that Mm. means is, is I never really have learned how to feel different emotions because it wasn't allowed in my house when I was growing up. And so the only emotion that I, like you've mentioned, that I was truly in touch with was anger because it benefited me. And if I was angry, everybody left me alone, right? I could not have to feel, I didn't have to go down those, those feely touchy roads because I could just use anger and disperse pretty much anybody. Uh, again, yeah. this is all hindsight, but I grew up being tough. And, and part of that story that gets even tougher is that our twins were born early. And this, this will feed into the callousness and, and toughness and kind of drive the point home, I think, because it was a statement made by a friend of mine down the road. But we had, we ended up having those twins. They were early because uh, we were a little older having children. And so my wife had some complications. So they spent five weeks in the NICU. And what was cool about it 
we and my wife have talked about it quite a few times. The time spent in the NICU was just a phenomenal time. And it's a tough time, but it was phenomenal because we remember being excited about having the kids, right? You know, the moments I explained earlier where I didn't want the kids and I did not want this, this was not something I wanted to be a part of. But that five weeks that we went and visited the NICU every day was really good for the soul because it allowed me to work on connecting. You know, I didn't Mm. necessarily know this at the time, but I was connecting, right? It was all about connection. I was connecting with those little girls. Uh, So we had two little girls and we spent every day connecting with them because when we got there, guess what the only focus was? The only focus was connecting, right? We weren't distracted by anything else. We weren't worrying about bills. We weren't worrying about all the other things that hit us you know, in this world. So we were just connecting. And then in 2016, I got promoted. I made the investigation division. So we were going to move from the Corpus area back up to Houston. And so there was a lot of things happening, very positive, I guess you could say at the time. And uh, in February of 2016, we took our babies home from the NICU. And um, one of the girls died of pneumonia in the middle of the night when we oh were at home. Oh my gosh. And That moment, um, obviously is one of the defining moments of, would be of any, any parent's life. And again, this is hindsight, but at that time, you know, I didn't understand trauma. I didn't know anything about trauma. I had no really understanding of it. I hadn't studied it. I haven't, you know, besides what people just talked about. Yeah. And that moment began like the downward spiral or, or, or enhanced that downward spiral that I was talking about earlier that just sent me into a extremely, extremely dark place. Yeah. And so losing a child really, really altered, you know, everything at that point. And so the, what I tell that when I, when I teach and when I'm out instructing, I, I tell that story mainly because I wanted to hit home that trauma is real for everyone. Cause there's a lot of folks that still just believe like traumas, uh, you're just weak or you're, mm. you're not strong. You're not tough. Right. And so after my daughter died, one of my best friends told one of my other good friends that, and I don't know this exact words, but it was in essence of Randy's a really tough individual. I don't think this is going to really bother him like most people. And my other friend told me that, told me that like a year later or so. And it, it hit me that he was mistaking toughness for callousness, Mm. right? I was just callous. I was just one of those people that could hide my emotions. Well, I was one of those people that didn't want to deal with emotions. I was one of those people that just pushed all that aside. So it gave off this aura of toughness, Yeah, but man, it wasn't toughness, right? I did have some toughness in there, but it wasn't what I think other people perceived and even what I perceived. And so that's what I, I think the major difference is, is when you're just a callous to emotions, that's not toughness. Yeah. There's, they're very, very different uh, when you're just emotionally distanced and emotionally kind of turned off. And so I think I realized I was just callous. It was a, a learned thing, uh, but it really put into perspective what it means to be emotionally absent yeah. when it comes to connections and friendships and things. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And then, you know, with everyone that's listening on this podcast, that's a an extremely vulnerable story to tell from, you know, beginning to end about all of your inner thoughts as you go through all of the 
go through the, all of the events. And what was the moment for you when you were like, oh, I'm disconnected or I'm callous? Like, and how did that fuel you? Like hearing that statement, it sounds like your friend or your friend of a friend was kind of saying it like a compliment. Yes. yes. And yep. was that the moment that it hit you of like, oh, I don't want that to be a compliment? Or was it a little bit further down the line? I think it was that moment. I think I realized that um, we sometimes wear a mask, you know, like of who we think we are. Yeah. And and we kind of create that persona to some degree because it's ignited by other people. Like they thought I was really tough. They thought that I could handle anything. So mm-hmm. again, I'm going to show them, well, of course I can. Like I'm that guy, right? I'm the guy that can handle that stuff. When in all reality, I realized I wasn't equipped at all to handle that. I had no tools in my toolbox to handle the trauma that came from losing a child and then now dealing with the policing world yeah with that just happening and now I've got to go back out and deal with the complications that come with the policing world and now I was getting involved in human trafficking and now I was going to become an investigator for human trafficking and I was going to have to deal with children that were being put into these most heinous situations yeah and I realized very quickly when I started doing that, that I did not have the tools to help these young kids. Uh, I could be a police officer and arrest people, but that wasn't helping. You know, the first child I ever rescued from being trafficked uh, was in Houston. We, we found her on Bissonette. She was a runaway. And I was kind of set up because I was new, but they wanted me to interview this young girl. And here I thought I was Superman, right? I thought I was going in and this girl was going to be so excited Mm. about me and getting her out of the life. And uh, I said, man, this is going to be great. And I walked up to her and she hated me. She cussed me out. She didn't want anything to do with me. Yeah. And again, at that moment, I realized, man, I'm not equipped for this. Like I have had no training. I have no past experience. I don't even, I wouldn't even know what to do besides just be nice to the person, right? But in all reality, when someone's angry to the police, we meet it with more anger, right? We tend to Mm. just like, we'll show you who the boss is. And that seemed to be the traditional model that I was seeing, not necessarily what I was doing, but what I was seeing and that was being modeled is that if a young child or someone that's full of trauma is just being very belligerent, well, we would just take control and do whatever we needed to do, not necessarily beat someone up, but we would, you know, just take control of the situation and ignore all of their needs and just throw them in jail or, or drop them off at a CPS facility. And then that was it. They're out of our hands. We don't care anymore. And I was like, this one, it wasn't working, but two, I just, I had no idea. I was lost. I was lost, you know? Wow. This episode is sponsored by Holistic Hope. Holistic Hope's mission is to foster hope by integrating a holistic approach to trauma-informed therapy and training. I am Faith Larson, licensed clinical social worker and owner of Holistic Hope. I am a certified clinical trauma and integrative mental health practitioner. Additionally, I am trained in evidence-based therapy modalities, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing, commonly known as EMDR, 
and the revolutionary safe and sound protocol, which is based off of the polyvagal theory, and talk therapy motivational interviewing. If you are a helping professional needing a safe space to process all of the stressors of your job or wanting to enhance your knowledge and skills to work more effectively with your clients, Holistic Hope has a place for you. Contact me at faith at holistichope.net or by phone at 281-215-3716 for a free consultation. Or if you want to know all of the services that Holistic Hope provides, visit us at our website at holistichope.net. I'm interested in knowing, you know, how you got into TBRI. It's an amazing story because in 2020, so this is, you know, about four years after my daughter had died, I was still lost. I was struggling at work mainly because I didn't have any tools to deal with these young kids. It was breaking my heart to see these young kids run the streets of Houston and have no real home to go to, a healthy home, you know, no, it was just breaking my heart. And I I found myself kind of debating whether is this for me or not? Like, I just don't think I can do this. Like I would have to switch, like not do human trafficking anymore because I just, I I was getting nowhere. We were kind of doing the same little model of, you know, take them to the CPS, we'd get them interviewed and we would try to go after the the guys that were trafficking them. But the model just wasn't working very well. Our procedures weren't lending itself to helping the kids get safe and, and get the assistance they need. And so in 2020, I was contacted by the training division in DPS and they had kind of been working with the governor's office in bringing TBRI to the governor's office, their human trafficking task force, as well as to DPS for some additional training for law enforcement. And I luckily was kind of at the forefront of the human trafficking kind of division in DPS. And Dr. Cross wanted to interview a couple of law enforcement investigators to kind of see how TBR would apply. He didn't believe that TBR was going to apply to law enforcement. And I was one of the lucky that got interviewed by the co-founder of the Karen Purvis Institute to see if this would be a good fit. And within that hour, I knew that was what I was missing. I knew these strategies were exactly what I was missing. We, we talked for about an hour and I just knew it. He explained just a little bit about TBR on how it worked. And the reason why I knew it worked was I was also a hostage negotiator. And these things kind of went hand in hand with hostage negotiation strategies. And uh, one's kind of nonverbal, the other's verbal, but they meld together so well. And I was like, man, this is what I need. This is like the savior, so to speak, for me at the time was like, I want to learn everything I can about this stuff. And so Dr. Cross was very kind to let me sit in on a lot of trainings that probably most people wouldn't have got the opportunity to. So I owe a lot to Dr. Cross. He's been a great mentor. And that started my journey. And then in 2021, I became a practitioner for TBRI. And we've continued to work on this training for law enforcement as well, which has just been a phenomenal experience so many great things that I've learned over the last couple of years in this part of the journey. So it's been a, I'm in a great part of the journey right now. You yeah. guys, I'm glad to share this with you because it's, it's just such a great spot to be in from where I was just, you know, two, three yeah, years Yeah, It ago. sounds like a, like a completely like full circle 
like transformation and we're so glad that you're here to share it. Um, just for like people listening that may not know what TBRI is, can you tell us what TBRI stands for and what are the like main principles of TBRI that, you know, you're talking about like, oh, these were the skills that I was missing. Can you just kind of highlight what those were? Yeah. TBRI is a trust-based relational intervention. And the cool thing about it, uh, the humble beginnings are just what's really great about it. Uh, Dr. Karen Purvis and Dr. Cross ran camps in the late 90s at TCU for kids from hard places. And the reason why I say it's a humble beginning is they just practically applied strategies after strategies after strategies after strategies with these summer camps until they start to find these things that actually worked. And then Dr. Cross documented and Dr. Purvis documented all these things. And it's just really, really attractive to me because it was it was done from the work on the ground. You know, it wasn't somebody just sitting around thinking of some theories and just throwing it out there. There was a lot of work done just labor intensive, right? Like what works and what doesn't work and how does this work? And then how do we define it? And so what's come from that is just a few things um, that are critical when you deal with kids, especially from hard places, but it's advantageous for any child. And it's actually advantageous for, you know, adult relationships as well is some basic strategies like voice quality, right? Your tone is so important how you speak to people because nonverbals are very important in conversation, especially with the child. Eye contact, like uh, the rule with eye contact, though, is we ask for it or we seek it, but we don't ever force it. Mm. And that's, you know, what did we grow up with? What did we always grow Mm -hmm. up with? Look at me when I'm talking to you. Unhealthy behavior, right? That's just very unhealthy. Behavior matching, things of that nature. So like a child that's much shorter than you, uh, if you're talking to him standing, that's not a good position to be in because that's a position of authority as opposed to a position of advocacy, yeah. like working with them. Appropriate touch. Touch is very powerful, but it needs to be appropriate, obviously, depending on the situation. Uh, and then the hardest thing I had was playful, being playful. Mm. Uh, I'm very competitive, you know, so we would play board games at home and I would just try to crush everybody. And that's not healthy either. Right. (laughs) Sometimes it's good to just be playful. And like my kids always want to make up games and make up rules. And I'm like, no, we're playing by the rules of the game. We have to have a definitive. Oh, my son wants to do that too. Yeah. Yes. He's like, now we're going to do this rule. And it's like, what? (laughs) Yeah. And so I struggle with playful engagement. And that's something that I've learned about myself is like, sometimes I just got to play. It doesn't have to be yeah. like silly play. It's just, just be playful, just laugh and have a good time because we do know like that laughter disengages fear, right? Like when you're having a good time and, and there's cheer, it really helps disengage fear of situations. It really helps disengage all of those things that come with being scared. And so it's again, learning these things and realizing how important play is, is, is so valuable. I still struggle with it, but I'm working on it. You know, it's one of those things that I'll get there one of these days. So what's the final like end goal for employing TBRI strategies? And you've talked about it like it was designed to work with kids that come from hard places. What's the end goal of the practice? <sighs> yeah, I, you know, I'm still currently working with um, the Karen Purvis Institute at TCU, and I don't have that direct answer. We have done four or five pilots of this training currently. Uh, We've been in Louisiana 
We went to Tennessee. We've done one in two in Texas. And I'm heading back to Louisiana next week. And so we're kind of early on as far as getting the material nice and packaged. Can we take a step back really yeah. quick? Earlier we were talking about like using TBRI with like the human trafficking victims that you were working with and, and with children and stuff. So can you walk us through like when that kind of turned of like, oh, this works when I'm engaging with someone from a hard place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now how can I help it to use us? Like how can I help it for myself and my, you know, where I work? Sure, sure. I moved back uh, to Victoria, Texas area from Houston. I was working in Houston, uh, human trafficking there for two or three years. And then I moved back closer to my hometown and I worked in the Victoria, Texas area, which is between Corpus and Houston. And about that time, 2019, so 2020, I learned about TBRI, and then 2021, I became a practitioner. So I started to really apply these principles uh, with trafficking victims that I dealt with in the Victoria area. And it was just a drastic change with focusing on connection first as opposed to trying to even giving them services or taking them to jail or doing whatever we needed to do with the victim, I focused solely on building a connection with them. True, genuine connection to show them that I um, had compassion. I didn't judge them based on them running away or doing drugs or whatever they were doing. And I just focused on the connection piece. And there's kind of parts of that is allowing them to feel safe in my presence, right? Physically, they were safe. I knew that. And that's what I learned about that earlier experience was I was confusing physical safety with emotional safety. And I thought it was one and the same, right? I thought if you're physically safe, why yeah. aren't you emotionally safe? It doesn't even make sense to me. But now I understood yeah. that there was a key component. The emotional safety is what I was missing. I didn't understand. And so when I got to Victoria... I started really working on that, the connection piece and understanding the emotional safety. And for TBRI, what they talk about, the term that TBRI uses for emotional safety is felt safety. Yes. And so what you were working towards is to help the people that you were engaging with to feel safe in your presence. Yes. Because most of the time for people that work in the trafficking world, which you said you learned, like I've had a similar experience, but I used to work in law enforcement too. And it was like, Oh, I'm saving the world. Oh wait, these people yeah, hate me. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, you know, and that had, that had to do with me thinking I could even save the world. Yeah, sure. Like the felt safety is, tell us a little bit more about that. Like tell us how you can help someone feel emotionally safe whether it be a person that you're working with from a hard place or your family, your kids, sure. people in your department. I think it goes back to those principles of a TBR, those strategies about uh, understanding tone, understanding eye contact, understand healthy touch. Because I had done a lot of interviewing schools. I've done, I was a hostage negotiator. So I had learned a lot of skills how to verbally engage with someone in a way to try to influence their behavior, try to change their behavior or try to alter their behavior. And so what I did was combine those verbal strategies that I had learned. What I realized is I wasn't very good at the nonverbal. A lot of times I was very, not that I'm a, a large person, but I think my body language was that it was somewhat intimidating for a lot of folks because I, I bring a lot of like intensity to situations uh, unknowingly because that's mm. just my personality. I'm very intense. I'm very 
you know, focused, I'm very driven. And so I think some of that was carrying over in just my body language. And so it probably could be misconstrued as like, this guy's just trying to hurry and get through this. And, you know, he doesn't care about me. He just wants to move me on to the CPS facility. He wants to take me to jail. And so I was becoming more cognizant about those strategies as far as being a little more playful, right? It was really hard, but I found being more playful with these young kids, um, really, really changed everything. And what I mean by that is we were always, always advised against like becoming too friendly with these kids. And that's completely contrary to building a connection, right? And so if you want to build a connection with someone, you got to get to know them. You have to be vulnerable. They have to be vulnerable and you have to do it with compassion and somewhat understanding. And we were advised as law enforcement, that's not our job. You know, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And I just found it harder and harder to separate the two because in order to effectively help this young girl or young boy or whoever I was dealing with, I needed to draw upon that connection that felt safety, right? Help them feel safe emotionally. And that might take five hours. It might take seven interviews, you know, it, you just don't know. And so we were always focused on just getting all the answers right now. And I just backed off of that concept. I'll give you an example. There was a girl that ran away from Houston from my hometown. And we went and recovered her and picked her up and brought her back from Houston. And so for the two and a half hour drive to take her to a rehab facility, we just talked about life. I acted like she wasn't a trafficking victim. I acted like we just talked about life. We got to know each other. I know what our favorite food is, what our favorite color is. We just connected. We got to the point where we're safe. We feel comfortable talking to each other. I didn't force any questions upon her. I didn't ask her about how many people she had slept with or how many traffickers she's had. We just connected. And what's cool about that story is we eventually sent her out of state uh, because she was having some continual issues. And that's a whole nother, whole nother podcast we could do about, you know, she was dealing with the fire at home. She was dealing with so many issues. So she continued to run away. So we sent her out of state to a rehab facility. And I, unfortunately it broke my heart. I could not take her. I couldn't be one of the officers that took her because I had some prior engagements with my own family. And, but I called her on the way. And the first thing she said to me was just, it just, it still blows my mind. So I'd spent maybe three hours with this young girl. I spent two and a half hours on the drive from Houston to the rehab facility. I went and visited her at the rehab facility, spent about 30 minutes with her there. And then I hadn't seen her. I called her on her way to this new facility out of state. And the first thing she told me was that she missed me. And I knew at that wow. moment that the strategies that I'd used, I wasn't doing to be deceitful, but these strategies work. You know, we made a connection. She felt safe with me. We'd spend maybe three hours total together. And she told me, first thing she told me, she missed, you know, talking to me and visiting with me. It was just really profound. Not that something Randy did something awesome. It's just that these strategies work when you try to connect with people at a real human level first, you make so much more gains in whatever you're looking to accomplish. Right. And what I love about TBRI, and I've I've attended... I think I've been through trainings like four times at this point, is that understanding that everybody has a reason for what they do. Yes. 
We are all trying to make sense of our world, to get a need met, to feel safe. And so no matter what the behavior is, there's a reason behind it. And, you know, what I'm hearing you say is historically in law enforcement, it's the like shut it down method, like just stop the behavior, criminal punish the behavior. And this, and even from, you know, how you described how you were raised, this very authoritative um, yep. just control. And the beauty of TBRI is that, hey, if you can actually help someone feel safe enough to connect with what they need and then empower them to express that need and to get it met in a safe way, you automatically resolve the behavior. Absolutely. And you've just made that road not just way easier, but way healthier and way more productive for everybody. Well said. That's giving me chills just thinking about it. That is just perfectly said. That's exactly what we need to do. Absolutely. And so just hearing you talk about that reframe for law enforcement, that's the kind of stuff that like gets me fired up is just to imagine a world where our law enforcement is not entirely punitively based, but to say like, we're supportive. We are here to help our citizens and our community be the best people they can be. And when their behavior isn't conducive to a healthy society, we're going to establish connection and we're going to empower them to get their needs met and we're going to correct them as needed. And what I loved is in TBRI, you know, you have to hear things several times, but this last time, this really stuck with me. Hearing Dr. Purvis say, you want to do the correcting and then get as quickly as you can back to playful engagement. Yes. Like have that moment where you have to say no or enough, you know, whatever you do to draw that line and then immediately go back to connection and never make a child or in this case, you know, the people we're working with feel like their belonging is on the line. Yep. And when you can correct them and correct their behavior and then continue to affirm their belonging and their value Again, that need is met. They're empowered to get their needs met in safe ways. And they're not going to continue to act out of that fear or out of that identity that that they're isolated or they don't belong. And it's just, I don't know, to imagine a law enforcement that operates out of those principles is hard to wrap my mind around, but (laughs) really exciting. So you are just about, you're about to tell us, you know, what this law enforcement training is. Tell me, tell me your vision. Like what is Randy's dream for law enforcement moving forward? Yes. Yeah. You know, as I've, I've just been a sponge over the last two or three years and soaking up all this information. So I, I think right now where I'm at, it really, you kind of already said it, Krista, is I want to envision or I envision this change and it's going to take time, but like this, and I hate even say the word change because people get very defensive when we talk about change. And so maybe journey, I think I like the word journey. Let's use journey because everybody gets, when you talk about change ever, and I understand (laughs) it, like I understand generational stuff in the sense of like, you know, generation to generation, when things change, like social media changes, everybody's like, Oh my gosh, this social media stuff is, so I get the idea of change. So let's talk about journey. So my hope is almost just what you said, Krista, you kind of like summed it up, is to take the law enforcement that we already know and help them understand that 
the more we can connect with the community, the better outcomes we're going to have. It's really the crime and punishment mentality for everything just doesn't work. We know that. We know that for a fact. We're experiencing that right now where we have just overflowing prisons with people that were committed minor crimes and they've been there for a long period of time for these very minor crimes. So we know that this traditional crime and punishment just does not work across the board. Now I do believe there's evil in the world. I've been doing this long enough to know there, there are some bad people out there that definitely, uh, I worked in a lot of, um, pedophilia crimes as well. So I know there's some bad people out there that that are going to have to be dealt with in certain measures. So I don't want anybody hearing this, especially law enforcement, think that Randy's gone soft and like we don't want to put anybody anywhere. It's not that. I think every situation needs to dictate what the result is or how we handle those situations. And I think we have to go back to seeing people in our community. This is critical. Law enforcement has to go back to seeing people in our community as human beings. And uh, and the community needs to see us as human beings as well. Yeah. I, I understand that argument. But the reason why I say that is because we get so caught up in this bad guy versus good guy thing that everybody's a bad guy and we're the good guys. And that bleeds over into, we normally don't call them routine traffic stops, but it blends over into like a normal traffic stop that just goes haywire because we think this person is kind of willfully dis- being disobedient to us and they're being jerks instead of just having compassion and saying, well, you know, this person could have got fired today or this person could be having a really horrible day. What's the need behind the behavior? As you just said to Krista, like, let's focus on the behavior and not the person. What is the need yeah. behind this person's behavior? Why are they acting this way? And we're just not doing that. And that's what I want to see. I think I really think that's important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you want to take the callousness that you personally experienced and in the culture of law enforcement and take it out. You want to get back to doing, you you don't want to be soft, but you want to not be callous. Absolutely. And you want to be able to connect as human beings. I might be a law enforcement officer approaching your car and you might be someone I just pulled over, but we're both humans and we can both get our needs met without being emotionally disconnected from each other. Perfectly said. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, if this was a journey that could actually be obtained, like, gosh, the world would be such a different place, such a better place. Absolutely. It also is, you know, big drive is, This will help the officer tremendously, uh, not only with the experiences with those in the community, but it'll also help that officer at home. It'll also help that officer continue to have thriving, healthy relationships outside of law enforcement. And that's really, I think, what's so important because at this moment, I really feel, and we're actually trying to gather data on this, trying to understand and get a feeling for what's the true life cycle of an officer before they really get in that downward spiral that I was kind of mm-hmm. talking about earlier. Like, how quickly does that happen? It happened within four years for me, but I don't know how that is across the board. And so we're trying to collect some data on that so we can get a better idea that how detrimental mental health and the things that come with this type of career are to our folks 
not only our officers, our spouses, our children, we are creating very bad cycles and we're passing them on to our kids and our spouses along the way. And that's super impactful because I'm trying to break those cycles, right? I'm trying to not only break cycles from my childhood, but I'm also trying to not create new negative, unhealthy cycles for my kids and my spouse as we move forward on that journey. So it's a lot. It's it's emotionally draining, but it's much needed. Hmm. Yeah. Can I ask like a, a hard personal question? Yeah. You've talked a lot about like hindsight. Now I'm in hindsight and I'm, I'm looking back at, at where I was. Can you just, you don't have to go into super details, but I assume that the work that you've done personally going through TBRI training, I'm going to assume there has been also some personal work that's had to happen alongside of all of that. So could you just tell us a little bit of what that looks like to heal from childhood trauma, heal from the trauma of losing a child, all while trying to also navigate, like what did that personal journey look like for you? That's that's a great question. I think the most important part of it is what we teach in our class about self-awareness. I think it has to start with the individual. And I think you have to look in inward first. Uh, we talk a lot about the trauma out there in the world that we face, but we also talk a lot about the trauma that's in us. And yeah. my personal journey has been one that's spent a lot of time reflecting prior to going through the TBRI practitioner training. We do an adult attachment interview. And that was really an eye opener for me to have a better understanding of dismissive kind of attachment styles and understanding what that brought to me as a child. Mm. You know, I never had heard of ACEs. And so when I learned about ACEs and I understood how the study worked, I realized I had four ACEs. And so there was a lot of things there that everyone probably thought I just, my childhood was considered normal. I thought it was considered normal, but it was not normal. Uh, my dad was extremely physically abusive to my mom and to us, as well as verbally abusive. And wow. it had always been dismissed, right, by the family, by my mom, by everyone. And so there was just a lot of things that I had to come to terms with that truly happened that we kind of just swept under the rug. And so it was all about that looking inward. And then what kind of behaviors was that manifesting in me whenever I'm trying to get into a relationship? I was verbally abusive. Uh, I was never physically abusive because I vowed at watching that growing up that I would never, ever do anything like that. But I was carrying on that, that cycle of verbal abuse that my dad carried on. And I came from a very authoritative household where my dad, he decided everything every single thing, what we would eat, the type of haircut we had. I mean, he was very authoritative. And so, oh wow, you know, coming to terms with all of that, and my dad recently died back in May. And so just a lot of things that created the need for me to look inward and quit blaming everybody else and quit saying it's somebody else's problem and quit saying, oh, this is just who I am. Right. And not understanding anything about who I am. You know, I didn't even really know who I am. Like it's still yeah. a journey of even understanding what I like and dislike and don't like because I didn't get to make those choices as a kid. And so that journey has been one that 
It starts with the yeah. self. I think we've learned this through our trainings and our teaching this stuff out to different professions, law enforcement, teachers, and things of that nature is it really starts with that self-awareness and being conscious about what you bring to the interaction, like with someone else. Yeah. And something I tell clients all the time, because any type of journey, therapeutic journey starts with self-awareness. We have to get self-aware before we can turn to the journey of change, but self-awareness sometimes feels so bad. Like it hurts. I always tell clients like, it's like a double-edged sword. Like we have to do it, but sometimes it hurts worse than like when you came in, when you started this journey, now you feel worse. And, you know, when people feel worse, you know, I tell every single new client that I get on the very first session, I said, eventually you will feel worse than you feel now. And you will think, Hey, therapy's not working. And so I'm going to quit. But instead I want you to lean in and say, I feel worse because therapy is working and the change that I'm looking for is just right on the other side. And so if I can just hang on for just like a little moment of worse discomfort, that journey that I'm trying to finish is, is so close. And so can you tell us a little bit about that? Like sitting with the discomfort of the self-awareness and how that has been impactful. Absolutely for not only you personally, your family, but also for now trying to turn, you know, the law enforcement agent culture on its head. Absolutely. I think um, with me, it was so tough because coming from an authoritative background uh, and one that was dismissive, I had to realize that everything was not going to be my way. And so that was extremely painful because a lot of people are very controlling in the sense of safety, right? If we can control everything around us, we feel like that's going to make us safer. We're not going to be vulnerable. We're not going to expose ourselves to anyone emotionally. Uh, And so it's critical that we understand there is no way to form a connection when you are in an authoritative situation, whether you're being the authority or someone else is being the authority, there's no way to form a connection. And the hard part for me was, as I mentioned, I'm not very playful. Uh, I'm an introvert by nature for the most part. And so I was always making excuses that the reason why I'm not connecting and making these friendships and, and harvesting these friendships was because that's just who I am, you know, if they don't like me for who I am, then, you know, to heck with them. I I don't want to hang out with them anyway, or I don't want to be their friend anyway. And the painful Mm. thing has been going out and making those connections and saying, you know what, whether I agree with this person or want to hang out with this person or, or are they going to be a best friend with me? It's been a battle to just go out and make connections where I wouldn't think connections should be made or would naturally not make. And it's been, it's been tough. I mean, it, it, when you're exposed like that and you make yourself that vulnerable regularly, which I try to do, it's tough to do. And I think that's been the hardest part of my journey and, and the most grieving because I'll come back and I'm not afraid to admit it. I'll come back and be almost at tears because I was so stressed about that encounter or so worried about what did that person really think of me when I was vulnerable, right? Like being exposed that way, it, it comes back yeah. and takes you on a on an emotional like roller coaster that you're like, what did that person really think of me? I just cried in front of 300 people 
like, oh my gosh, they're going to think I'm the biggest wimp when I have that mask. Remember that mask I talked about earlier of being this tough guy. And that's what I want everybody to perceive. So the ability to go out and and tell the story of my daughter dying and, and still choking up is, is, is real. That's what real emotion is, you know, and being able to finally express that has been hard, but man, it has been so relieving to express it and everybody go, yeah, man, I see why you're crying. (laughs) Right. Yeah. To have people connect with you. And if anyone has been on this journey with us for all 10 episodes, I'm going to talk about Brene Brown again really quick. You know, you said, I don't want anyone to, I just was super vulnerable. I don't want anyone to feel like a wimp. But if you've read Brene Brown's work, you know, she studied shame and vulnerability. And, you know, one of the main things that she says is being vulnerable is the bravest, strongest thing that anybody could do because it's the hardest thing that anybody could do. And so, I just really want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and being vulnerable and being so raw and real with us about personally and professionally. And then also so hopeful with us about like, you know, where all of this pain is for something hopeful and for something so transformative. And I I really hope that that's, you know, what people picked up from this is yes, the journey is hard and it is painful, And sometimes it's scary, but there's so much hope on the other side. For sure. And and one thing I'll share to kind of to wrap this up is being on the inside in law enforcement. I know this is what even the law enforcement officers want and need because I get it expressed to me all the time. You know, behind closed doors, when I've built up enough connection with the different officers, they're expressing this exact thing that we're talking about. And they're wanting that they can't come out and say it for that same fear of being vulnerable like we're just talking about. And so, so often, I guess I'm sometimes tabbed as the kind of leader in this. So like, Randy, you tell them, (laughs) Randy, you tell them because you've already been out there. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like you go and say all this, but in behind closed doors, so many of these rough, tough, I mean, guys that I even go, man, these guys are tough as nails. Like I wouldn't want to get in a fight with these guys. I wouldn't want to deal with these guys. And then when we get to know each other and we spend some time together and we open up, I'm amazed by how much this is needed. We've lost too many brothers and sisters in law enforcement to suicide and to leaving the force or or getting arrested because they're making really bad choices in very vulnerable moments. Uh, and so, man, I just really want to help those folks and let them know there is a, a way to make this better and to help them uh, in their journey to, you know, keeping healthy, positive relationships. And I'm so passionate about it. I'm so excited that you guys asked me to be on so we could discuss this. So uh, I'm really uh, excited to where we go forward from here. Oh, we are too. And it, again, it's just so beautiful. And And to hear your story and to hear the passion that you have, the gifts that you have, and to realize that every law enforcement officer underneath all of that quote unquote toughness, right, are these layers Mm -hmm. that make them an incredible and impactful, powerful person. And those can get buried underneath the calluses. And it's risky, right, to choose a different way and to choose vulnerability and to realize like these emotions, these experiences feel threatening 
but when we face them, we realize we're actually bigger. You know, they're not going to swallow us whole like we think they are. If I if I sit with this sadness or this shame or this grief or whatever, it's not actually going to swallow me whole and consume me. I can actually sit here and feel it and still be okay. And and now when I can face that, now I'm not running. Now I don't have to run and hide and be on the defensive from these emotions or these experiences or these memories or whatever it is. I actually have the capacity to hold that within me. And that's just a different definition of strength than I think we've been given. And so it's been an honor to mm, hear you yeah. talk about that journey for you and the way that you own your story and take responsibility is something that is just inspiring. So thank you. We know that you do trainings and you help law enforcement with this. Tell me where people can find you. How can people connect with your work uh, to keep going on this journey? Yes, um, you can reach. I have a, a currently a nonprofit organization that I started back in 2021-ish, right after uh, I met Dr. Cross and TBRI. That website is k4, uh, the number four enterprises.org. And you'll have all my contact information on that website. Uh, we are also updating that regularly on the new trainings and where we are in the nation training and kind of a little bit of updates of what our plans are in the future. So that website will direct you to everything you need to know if, if you'd like to reach out to me. Amazing. Well, we hope that you do. We hope that you get a lot of traffic and we're looking forward to seeing the work that comes out of K4 Enterprises. Yeah. Again, thank you so much for being here and sharing with us. Absolutely. It was a, a, a great joy. You guys are awesome. We are grateful.